Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Pop Culture Podcast. I hope you are doing really well. Man, I've got a treat for you today. I've got a little treat for you. I'm, I'm really I'm excited to introduce this guy to you if you haven't heard of him already. He's coming at you from New Jersey over in the United States. New Jersey accent and all. This guy's just an hour outside of New York and he's, a, he's in the stand-up comedy scene over there. But more than that, He's got a unique balance of flavors on his CV. He's a strength and conditioning coach working with athletes, working with people who are just trying to find their way into the health and fitness scene. And uh, as a result, the conversation is broad and it's wide and it's interesting. I pick his brain all around the comedy scene, where he's at, how he got involved, what he's doing with it over there. It's a, it's a good chat. And then more than that, we want to find out a little bit about the strength and conditioning world. Hey, how do we stay in better shape? How do we get in better shape? For a little bit podgy, how do we lose it is the question that I wanted to find out. There's a, there's a heap here about health and nutrition and fitness, and there's a heap here about comedy. So I, I hope you guys enjoy it. I certainly did. If you like it, as I said, his name's Angelo Gingerelli. I've put his details in the show notes. Check that out. But for now, enjoy this conversation with myself and the man with the strongest accent out of my friendship group. It's Mr. Angelo Gingerelli. What are you going to tell us, tough guys? My usual. Zero. Nothing. Yeah, sweet. Awesome, man. Yeah, I was just saying before I hit record that uh, I had you on the Relaxed Running podcast, which is another podcast that I host, which is obviously the, uh, the you know, the example's probably in the title. It's about distance running, about running efficiency. And I heard you the first time on, I think, the Strength Running podcast. And I thought, man, i got to get this guy on. And then I went to your Instagram page and saw that the comedy world's a big part of your life as well. And I thought, hey, man, after my own heart, there's no, there's not too many people who have a passion for health and fitness and and also the comedy world. So I thought, what a what a bloke to talk to. But uh, hey, we're, we're back in the podcast world, but a slightly different approach today, huh? Yeah, it's exciting, man. I feel, I've, I've known what I was super soon you reached out on Instagram, but just five, six months ago, we hit it off really well. And it's weird to think, like, I think I was in New Jersey in the United States thinking I was a pretty singular entity because of what you said, how many people are combining two things, and you're on the other side of the world doing a very similar thing, to be honest. So it's kind of cool we found each other. Yeah, it's strange. I um I like the fact that because uh, I always joke with people in the comedy world that there's there's not many other places that I hang out where you've got alcoholics and drug addicts and fitness freaks and all just with the singular goal of trying to be funny. But when I meet someone uh, in the in the fitness world at the comedy scene, I get excited. In fact, last night we were laughing because uh, we had a gig here in Melbourne, and after the gig we went out to to dinner, and we were. Uh, we we're saying surely we've got to be the four fittest men in comedy. We we're sitting there looking at running times and going, who else in the comedy world is interested in this kind of thing? So it's always, it's always good to meet you. Yeah, man. We we there's an event at the Jersey Shore every year called Run a Palooza, right? And it's a marathon distance, but you do it with a team as a team of five. So like, I might run the first about five miles, hand a baton to you, you run the next five, and as a group we cover twenty six point two miles. And then for a couple of years, I would do, I had a team called The Running Joke, and I'd get four comics together. And at the end of the night, we would do a comedy show, and all the money would go to Special Olympics. It was a really cool day for me for a couple of years in a row. But unfortunately, it got almost impossible to find comics that could run five plus miles that were actually funny enough to do the show at the end of the night. So we, we got to discontinue that because I ran through everybody that, I, that could fit the bill for that in the first couple of years we did it. Man, that's funny. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how many uh, comics there'd be who could run the marathon. I find it hard to be funny sometimes when I'm completely fresh, yeah, <laughs> let, yeah, let alone having a marathon in the legs. Um, so what was that? Was it like it was a fundraiser or was it a specific event just for, to combine well, those there's two? A, there's an event, there's, a, there's an ongoing event where I live probably about 20 years called Run-A-Palooza, right? And it goes all the way up the coastline, 26.2 miles, and you can cover it any way you want with a team of five. So I could run the first five, you run the next five, or a friend runs the next five after that. So I kind of I started a team for that called the Running Joke, and at the end of that event, we had a theater rent it out, and we would do another show and donate to the same charity that the race was for every every year they did that. Um, until I, I ran out of comics, I couldn't book. There was nobody in, in my area that was both funny and fit enough to make make the team, so I take a break from doing it. That's funny, man. Which part of where are you again? I keep thinking New Jersey, but I don't know if yeah. I made that up. Yeah, no, I'm I'm in New Jersey. Um, I know if you remember with the TV show, the Jersey shore, um, mm -hmm. the worldwide phenomenon 10 years ago, that's where I grew up. That's exactly where I grew up. I've run that boardwalk a thousand times that they used to party on. And I partied there a few times too, to keep it real. 
But uh, that's exactly where I grew up. So that's uh, that's my world, man. Awesome, man. It's an interesting world that you're in, dude. Like, I, I'm sort of curious to pick your brain about sure. um, how you found your way into these two different scenes. Because obviously there's, I think we spoke briefly on the last podcast we did about how there's a, there's a nice correlation, for me anyway, between distance running and comedy. Like, I often noticed I had 15 years in the distance running world. And in that scene, I obviously developed a real passion for, all right, well, you've got to be consistent. You're going to have a bad race. You're going to have to come back from that bad race. And and more than all of that, you have to try and navigate, all right, what went so so right or what went so wrong? And I felt like that approach to the distance running scene was really attractive to me. So when I left it, when I retired, I was, uh, I think I missed it. I, I really missed that um, that desire or that effort just to try and improve something specifically. So uh, when I found my way into the comedy world, I couldn't believe the correlation or I couldn't believe how well those skills translated. I thought there's no way you're going to want to do comedy if you if you can't just embarrass yourself on a stage in front of people and not go back and reflect. And so many people, myself included sometimes, find it hard to, like they can get up maybe and talk, but the idea of listening back to anything that they say can just be terrifying. And I, <laughs> I yeah, find that the scariest part of, even sometimes I have a good gig and I'll get down, I go, I don't, I don't want to listen to it. But I kind of take that that discipline approach from uh, from the sports world and go, all right, well, this is this is a skill you're going to have to develop. But man, what a like, what's your journey into the comedy world? What started first? Because it is a unique set of skills you got. Yeah, yeah, man, definitely. So well, I was in high school in the '90s, right? And I was really lucky. I went to a public high school that had a good weight room for the time. Now it would be obviously outdated, but 25 years ago it was a great weight room, right? And I had a great strength and conditioning coach at that high school. Shout out, his name is Ron DeVito. Huge influence on my life. And I just decided, you know, somewhere in the high school era, I wanted to become a strength and conditioning coach, right? So I was graduating high school in the late 90s when in America we were starting to have an exercise science major and a strength and conditioning major and think kind of before that in the United States, if you wanted to be a strength coach, you just had to be a big, strong guy that played sports and you get a job training people, right? I was kind of right at the cost of becoming more academic, more research-based, more evidence-based, and was able to get an undergrad degree in that. And, you know, for being very lucky, if we're honest, I've only worked in the athletic training conditioning field for the last 20 plus years. I've had some other part-time jobs here or there, you know, parking cars, restaurants have to make extra money. But my career, I've been lucky enough to always find jobs in strength and conditioning. And I've been at where I am now, excuse me, since 2005. So in the United States and college athletics, there's a ton of turnover for a ton of different reasons we have to get into. But I'm on my 18th year at one stop. And being there for so long has allowed me to do a bunch of different things like pursue stand-up comedy, write a book about distance running, uh, kind of become a member of my community, do all these podcasts that we talked about before. So I think, you know, in America, there's a value to moving around, hopping from job to job and chasing the next highest salary, next most prestigious position. But there's also a value to, if you can, staying at a spot, growing some roots and becoming a member of that community, right? And then I kind of took the same approach to stand-up comedy where I live about an hour outside of New York City, right? So to, to quote unquote make it in comedy, at some point you gotta go to New York City and try to get gigs and do open mics and do the grind, right? I did that for a couple of years when I was living up north and moved down to shore. I lived in a real small city called Asbury Park, and it's kind of like the um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with say like Austin, Texas or Brooklyn, New York. Like it's an arch community, right? There's art galleries on every block. There's cool restaurants. There's there's music venues everywhere. There's cool DJs everywhere. But when I got there 10 years ago, there's really no stand-up comedy whatsoever, right? So I just kind of recognized that. I knew some comics when I was going to open mics up in New York City. And I was like, I can book this. And I can just start booking rooms here. And that's really what happened, man. I started booking a small theater once a month. And that turned into a bunch of open mics and a bunch of people that came to those. Started doing their own shows and different kind of venues. And improv troops started popping up. And a podcast studio opened. It's been kind of... And it, luckily enough, the shows I did in the beginning kind of grew, grew roots and that, that tree just blossomed lovely. We're now almost 10 years later, we have a great little community. And, uh, you know, I, I'm lucky enough. To, I, I think sometimes I get a little bit too much credit for being like the father of that Jersey Shore comedy scene because I was doing it with other people. But I think two things I did is give, every, you know, give everybody else credit. I was a little older than everybody else in the scene. I was like 30. They were all like 20, right? So I was probably a little better equipped to approach venue owners and, and talk to, to people in the local media about coverage than, than so many 10 years younger would have been. And then I wrote a book last year called Stand Up and Laugh about the development of that scene and being very open. I was lucky to be there at the very start of it. And if I wasn't you know, part of something, I kind of acknowledged I saw this happen. I saw why it was successful. And now here we are 10 years later. With I, I, th- I believe, I really believe, outside of the major cities in New Jersey, a comedy scene and a culture that's as good as any anywhere else in the world. 
Yeah, man. What is the comedy scene like in Jersey? Like, I've never been to the East Coast of America just yet, but I, I think in the comedy world, New York is, I think it's like the Mecca. Even just last night or a couple of nights ago at, at, the, at one of the gigs I was at, uh, a guy just got back from the States. He was there for a few weeks and he'd spent some time over in New York. And he was telling me, he goes, dude, it's so competitive over here. Like the amount of people that do it, he goes, there's, there's plenty of open mic rooms where if you want a spot, you're going to have to pay for that ticket just because they've got to decide who gets up somehow. Yeah. Um, it sounds insane, I, man. It, it really is, man. And New, New York City is, there's thousands of comedians and there's thousands of funny comedians to keep it real, right? There's Everybody's good, which is an amazing thing. Um, and at some of the places you might have to buy a ticket to get into an open mic, right? And your name goes in a bucket. And if you don't get called, there's a hundred names in a bucket and you might not get called that night. So it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword, right? The good thing is you can be in New York City, and this is definitely the case before the pandemic, but it's kind of the case again now, right? You can go within a three-block radius, hit five open mics in one night, right? But it might take 10 hours and a ton of waiting around to do it. But I don't believe there's any place else on earth where there's that much, that many venues with stage time that close to each other, right? Even on the West Coast, L.A. has a ton of comedy clubs and venues and stuff like that, but they're kind of spread out. You got to drive from one to the other. And how many you really hit in a night is kind of you're limited by your geography. We're in New York. You can literally, by mistake, walk into an open mic and see 10 great comics for the price of a couple of beers. I don't know if too many other cities in the, in the world are like that. In New Jersey, we have this, this weird thing in New Jersey. We're right, I always make, make the joke, you know, geographically, we're right east of New York City, right? Uh, we're right west of New York City, I'm sorry. So on a map, we're to the left. And we do everything just a little bit out of left field, to use an American baseball analogy. We kind of come from the outside a little bit. I think if you look at our, our punk rock, you look at our hip hop, you look at our comedy, it's kind of the same thing. We're people that grew up looking at the New York City skyline. We grew up watching what we could see on TV, right? So we, we grew up just looking at that world kind of be what, what the world thinks of America and us being like the little brother next door that couldn't quite get in. So we kind of developed in New Jersey in the last couple of years. You have a couple Big clubs, right? You have Stress Factory, you have Atlantic City, which kind of the Las Vegas of the East Coast, that book your big headliners, right? The people, you know, your Bill Burrs, your Dane Cooks, your Elijah Schlesinger, people that could sell at arenas, sell out those arenas, right? And then right below that, you have kind of what my world is, you're on the alternative comedy scene, was to put it, if you're a music fan, I like to say like the, the club world in New Jersey is like what's on the radio and what's on MTV and what's getting 100 million hits on YouTube, right? We're that one step below that of people that are kind of knocking on the door. Not everybody knows us. We have some rabid, you know, rabid fans that love what we're doing. And it's kind of more of an underground, not super publicized thing. But it's not happening in comedy clubs. It's happening in music venues. It's happening in independent movie theaters. It's happening in bars. It's happening in basements of pizzerias. And this kind of community has really, really blossomed because there's all these comedians that probably don't fit the mold or someone that would get a Netflix special, right, without like, 100 million Instagram followers or something. But there's an audience for what they're doing. So we found in Asbury Park and this great little music scene. We have the same clientele and the same fan base that's that likes punk rock and under, underground hip-hop and that kind of music also likes this kind of weird left-field underground comedy, alternative comedy, if you will. And we've really been able to make a little you know, cottage industry of shows and podcasts and and all these things that we're talking about now kind of really worked out for the last close to 10 years now. Yeah, man. It's unreal. You are, you mentioned how many how many hundreds or thousands of comedians there are in, in New York City, and especially those who are good. It's uh it's I always find it interesting to see who 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 makes it in inverted commas. You know what I mean? Because there's so many in you only have to listen to a couple of episodes of Rogan to hear him talk about absolute killers who, for whatever reason, uh didn't get a big breakthrough in the sense that they're not selling out arenas. And yeah. it's, it's funny, I saw an interview with Ricky Gervais a couple of years ago, he was speaking, at, I think it might have been Oxford, and during the conversation, um, one of the kids said to him, he's like, how do I get good at comedy? He goes, gig as often as you can and be really lucky. And I thought, yeah. oh, okay, I think it's uh, it, it seems like a little bit of a combination. Have you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I do, man. It's, it, I think it's the best and worst part of comedy, and I'm related, related to running because I work in athletics all day, so I always think about the way comedy and athletics are related or and sometimes opposite each other, sometimes very analogous. And I think the hardest thing about comedy is, and I, if you want to do anything, you've got to do it a lot. Even if you're you're super gifted, super talented. If you want to be a world-class runner, you got to run a lot of miles, right? If you want to be a world-class millionaire, well-known comedian, you got to get on stage a lot, right? But to, to me, the difference is this. If I want to run 
a lot. I just go to my house and run whenever I want, right? I could run three hours a day, seven days a week, and run 21 hours a week every week of my life and get better at it, right? Comedy is such a specific thing where you need an audience, right? So for a five minutes at an open mic, that might take two or three hours of your life by the time you drive, wait for your name to get called, do your set, buy your drink, wait for your friends to go drive home. So it's like, you know, if you use the Malcolm Gladwell example of 10,000 hours to become a master at anything, I don't know if that number's accurate, but it's a lot of hours you're good at anything. I think comedy is one of the few things that 10,000 hours of stage time probably takes 80,000 hours out of your life, right? Whereas like running or athletics or any kind of sport, the 10,000 hours of practice is just 10,000 hours out of your life, right? Um, and the other thing, as much as I love both worlds, I think I can, I can tell from your podcast, you love both worlds a lot. The one thing that I think is somewhat fair about sports like running, right? I put swimming in this category. I put cycling in this category. Anything where it's not up to a coach or a judge determining how good you are, it's objective. If, if I run a mile in 10 minutes and you run a mile in nine minutes, you're faster than me. There is no debating that, right? You, nobody beats, nobody can cheat the clock, right? It is what it is. Comedy is such a weird thing because it's so subjective, right? I watch people at open mics under re, you know, in restaurant basements that crack me up, kill me, right? Then the next day, I'll watch a guy or girl on Netflix and just nothing. Not thinking, they're not, I won't crack a smile. And then at the same time, you might have the complete opposite effect on each person, right? So you might love the person I hate and hate the person I love. Like I was, I'm more about this. I think whoever you think is the greatest comedian of all time, right? To me, I think that's probably Chris Rock. He's probably my favorite comedian of all time. There's people that find nothing funny about Chris Rock at all. They just watch his great, they watch, you know, bring the pain and they're just like, does nothing for me. And whereas athletics, you can't argue who's the fastest person or who's the, how who jumps the highest. It just is what it is. And comedy being so subjective, I think that's so much based on having the right people like you at the right time and them kind of deciding you're the next person to, to come up and come with us into the, the in club, if you will. You know what I mean? Now, one yeah. thing I do think, I think that might be a little different now because you, you do see the occasional person really blow up from YouTube or a funny Instagram account or a podcast, right? You do see that where 20 years ago that wasn't an option. But even in that case, I think to really go to that next level, the industry kind of has to give you the nod that you're going to become, become a part of it, right? Now, that being said, I think we live in the greatest time of all time because even if you never get that call from Netflix, never get that call from HBO, you can cultivate a fan base, entertain your fan base, and put out albums and podcasts and YouTube videos to to your heart's content. You can do it forever and pursue yourself artistically in a way you just couldn't do a generation ago. So I think it's it's kind of like the double-edged sword. There's very good parts to it, very bad parts to it. But the idea of I think I read a book a while ago about, about writing movies, and it had a, it starts with a quote: "If you have an iPhone." You're better technology in your pocket right now than Steven Spielberg did when he made Star Wars or George yeah. Lucas made Star Wars. So that we could do all these great things now. We're talking the other sides of the world right now, but then you know, the side of that is everybody else is able to do great things and interesting things, and now we're fighting for attention after everybody over everybody else. Yeah. Do you remember what that book was called? It, it was called uh, Writing Movies for Fun and Profit, and it was written by. Uh, do you know the show Reno Nine One One? You guys have that over there? No, we might have uh, it, but I don't know in the, it. In the 90s, there was a, a comedy troupe in, in the stage called The State, right? And they were kind of like the underground Saturday Night Live. They did sketches, and they were on MTV for a while. And then everybody on that show kind of kind of blew up in different ways. Like, some became actors, some became writers, some became producers, right? And a couple of those people got together, and uh, they wrote this book about kind of how they did it and advice for young people who want to write movies and TV shows. It was a, it was an interesting book, and it, I think I mean I haven't written anything successful yet, but I think it made some pretty good points. Yeah, man. Actually, I'm just thinking because I've got a book right here. This is what I thought you might have been referring to. Um, I don't know if you've heard of this, man. It's called The Writer's Journey. I have heard of it. I have not read it. What are your What are your thoughts on it, dude? So I'm only I'm only a couple of chapters in, and I don't, I don't even know. Like I'm I'm I haven't really done much writing outside of what I write for comedy, and uh, but I'm really curious about it. Like I love the idea of potentially. Uh, I don't know, like the idea of writing a play or the idea of writing a show or something like that is just in the back of my mind. It'd be a fun thing to do. And uh, yeah. I heard, I, I can't remember who it, who it was that I heard speak about this, but just the way it was explained, I was going through a phase where I'd heard a lot about the hero's journey and about how mm-hmm. that, that idea is encapsulated in so many stories. Like the idea of going from the familiar place, overcoming some underground figure or some really dark challenge and then coming home with greater knowledge. And um, the explanation I heard is so many of the great movies, whether it's, you know, Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings or 
just insert whatever movie it is. Uh, they, they sort of take that journey. And apparently a lot of Hollywood writers are recommended, uh, you know, to read this book. So uh, I'm, I'm a couple of chapters in, but he's just explaining some of the, you know, some of the key features of what these stories are and, and why they're important because uh, apparently it just speaks to a, a deeper part of it, like something that we know deep down is true but might not have the words to communicate. So it's the first book on right apart from On Writing by um, – What's his name? The uh, he's, he's Stephen King. Stephen oh, okay. King. Sorry, I keep looking around at my bookshelf there. Um, uh, it's the only only book apart from that one that I've ever really read. So it's I'm probably not the best judge of of how good it is. But uh, I've in, I've enjoyed the first couple of chapters. As a bloke who's probably a little further down that road, or it sounds like a lot further down that road than me, man, I recommend it. It's uh, it's definitely worth checking out. Nice, thank you. Appreciate yeah, it. awesome, awesome, man. So, dude, what's your thoughts on on uh, this idea of performing regularly for comedy? Because the to, to keep going back to running examples, I I often look at you know a lot of the best runners, and the best runners aren't necessarily those who go out and they just do the most miles. Like, there's some form of balance. You've got to go at obviously talent is a thing, and then training is a thing, and recovery and diet and the ability to handle pressure when it gets to race day. Um, and I noticed this with comedy as well, and it's no disrespect to, to the people hustling the hardest. I actually admire it, but there's there's not like a direct correlation between the people who are gigging the most and and the best the best performers in a lot of people's opinions. So the people getting up at the biggest clubs here in Melbourne aren't necessarily the people who are performing the most regularly. Um, and it's a it's a fine line because I like the idea of of doing something for a long time and doing it consistently. And I don't know if I was if I was doing ten. 10 gigs a week or whatever. I, I don't know how long I'd be able to maintain that for. Uh, but the idea of doing like four or five gigs a week is it feels like a sweet spot for me. Um, so I'm, I'm really interested in talking to comedians about this because it's, it's like the unsolved riddle of comedy yeah. in my mind. Everyone has opinion and mm. I've never heard, I've never heard too many people agree on what the, uh, what the secret source is. Okay. My opinion on that is I think two things in America, we had a saying for, I don't know, for a hundred years, long stamp has been a thing, never turn down stage time. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that basically makes sense, except in the era we're in right now, if you could do something else, you're going to further your career. Maybe that, not, like for example, tonight, I could have gone to an open mic. I could have been on your podcast, which is popular all over the world and big in Australia. To go to an open mic down to my house doesn't make any sense tonight. I should do this. That, that's fair, right? You're, this is a priority tonight. Now, tomorrow, I'll go to an open mic. For me, my kind of sweet spot is if I can do one actual show a week in front of a paying audience and do my material that I know works, right? So 50 shows a year, I'm happy with that. And then in the course of the week leading up to that, if I could do hopefully two open mics where I can try new stuff in a room full of comics, and then if it works, start working into that show at the end of the week, that kind of works for me. So one thing I've I've done for my entire comedy career is that I've always tried to host an open mic wherever I I am, right? So I, I, I ran, in the last 10 years, I've run two open mics that lasted several years till the venues run out of business. Then I moved them to another venue right away. Cause my thing is if you're me where I have a full-time job, I run a, a decent amount and I have a daughter that's seven and a wife that I can't be out every night. If I go to an open mic, I give you five minutes of stage time, right? If I run the open mic, I could do five or 10 minutes to open and I could do a couple minutes in between every comic. And I might get 20, 30 minutes of stage time in the course of that two or three hour mic, right? And I like that I'm giving a mic to you. I'm giving an opportunity to young comics. I think if you're going to build a community and build a world around this, that's one very easy way you can give back and get younger people involved and help starting them get better. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm not the, the older guy that wants to sit down and help people punch up jokes and tell them how to be funny. My thing is, I haven't really blown up yet. I can't tell you how to be funny. But what I can do is be at this one venue every Monday at 8 o'clock. And if you want to come and get up, put your name on the list, and I'll give you some stage time. And I do that as much as I can. So for me at this stage of my life, if I could get one good show a week and then two, two, one to three open mics a week, I'm pretty happy with that. And that kind of works for me. I could try some new stuff, and then use the good stuff on the weekend shows. That works for me. Um, in an ideal world, probably do two or three shows a week and two or three open mics, which is where I am life-wise right now. I just can't make that happen. Yeah, it's an interesting juggle with family, isn't it? Like I uh, often say to my wife, and I say this isn't something that I want, but I just say like if I was a bachelor, I'd probably just be all I did. You know, I'd probably just run. And uh, but I also don't know that I'd be that fulfilled. I feel very yeah. fulfilled now. I've got I've got an amazing family. I've got an amazing passion. I've got amazing loves like in and around my life. So it's it is in from the a comedy standpoint, maybe it's a temporary sacrifice. But you know, if I can if I can maintain this for twenty years, which I've got no intentions not to. 
Like you can make it, you can make a fair bit of traction in that amount of time and then hopefully have an amazing family on top of that, which is something that I, you know, I, I think in the comedy world, like without generalizing too much, I, I think we're, we're like an OCD bunch. We're happy just to, the people I've met, we're happy just to chuck out our whole energy into this one particular area. And the idea of like a family or something doesn't necessarily catch a lot of our attentions. I don't, I don't know if that's something that's true over there, but it's something that, um, I don't know. I feel like I notice a lot, like you got a lot of bloody good comedians and then you have a conversation with them off stage. They're like, yeah, but I mean, I, I feel like I've sacrificed other areas of my life, which I get to, it's a weird balance. Yes. And I, I, I struggle with that balance more because there's two, I always look at it two ways, right? You look at people like us that have a lot of passions, have families, jobs, training, comedy, and you, you like to think we can become, become professional comedians and make a career out of this, right? But then I look at people that they do nothing but comedy and they haven't done that yet. So how arrogant am I to think I could probably put 25% of myself into that and make it as far as them? That doesn't make any sense, right? Yeah. But then the other side of it is I see people that have put everything into comedy, no family, no, no they have a part-time job, don't have a career kind of thing, or right? that's choices they made, and that's fine. And they haven't really blown up yet either. So it's like if I'm if, – I don't know if I, I love my family. I, I like my day job. I love training. I love writing books. If I was going to give all that up to get just maybe one step higher on the comedy ladder, I don't think that's worth it. Right. Mm. Would I give all it up to be on TV every night and have the biggest podcast and have, make that choice? I don't know. Cause I really like my family. You know what I mean? I, wouldn't want to that <laughs> yeah, me too. I, I, I definitely wouldn't give it up to just get a couple notches higher. And I think that's what you, a lot of times you do. You give everything up and put your age in one basket and, it, and if it doesn't pay off, and even if you do, you're not going to pay off right away. It's going to take years anyway. Um, how, yeah, I think you, you can possibly end up unfulfilled. And it's a possibility. Yeah, man. Did you ever, I can't remember the name of it, but it was a Seinfeld making a return to step. Was it when stand-up stood out maybe? And uh, Jerry Seinfeld, he's making his return to stand-up. And in the process of him coming back to stand-up, he's doing some like way smaller gigs than he'd ever done yeah. before. And there's like a, guy who i think fits into the category of what we're talking about he'd never he'd never blown up and he was obsessed and he had he'd take you into his spare room and it was just filled with journals and joke books and it was um you know it had the perfect tabs and his whole life was committed to it and and like what you just said it hadn't necessarily blown up and it's something um it's really interesting it's kind of it's kind of like i love the passion at the same time i feel sad for the guy because i'm like oh this is your whole life and it's just not it's just not working in the way that you thought it would and then there's jerry seinfeld who'd come off and his joke would bomb and he would laugh and be like, ah, whatever, we'll figure it out and I'll readjust yeah. it. Right. I think it's a little easier to, to, to laugh when you bomb, when you drive back to your mansion in a Bentley. <laughs> right? It's a little, a little different than the guy that's going back to his room with the notebooks on a son. Yeah, good boss. point. Um, I think there's something to that, right? At this point, what does Seinfeld have to prove anymore? But um, I, I, I think something interesting too with Seinfeld, I, I wanted to talk about this, dude. I, I really liked your last episode, right, with the older gentleman, who you said was had just so much joy in his life. It was quoting verses from books for Beto. And it was just, just such a, a lively, full of life guy. I think one thing that's very different between comedy and your family, you know, everybody's family and sports is this. And I think there's, this is why when Seinfeld had kids, he, he kind of changed. Most communities, when they have kids, things change for them, right? Their life changes, their material changes. And me and my wife, we don't argue, we debate this a lot. When I'm around comedians, right? My sensibilities and my view of right and wrong and my view of what's funny takes a turn for the worse. Okay. It definitely does. Because you're around people that I don't want to say his name because he's a good friend of mine. But one of my one of my best comedy friends in New Jersey's mother passed away about a month ago and he was making jokes about it on his podcast before she was buried. Right before the wake. And then I'm listening to it and I'm like, all right. I'm good with almost anything comedy-wise. This is a lot to handle, right? And it's like, there's other people that will lose a parent. I lost my mom, and it's never funny to them. And this guy's like 72 hours out of the hospital and, and cracking up about it in, in, a, in a crazy way. Um, and I think that's a, it's a weird way to look at the world because when you get out of that comedy world and you got to go to your day job or you got to go to a family event, and the things that were killing at the open mics is making people think you're a crazy, wild, savage person for saying, you got to temper it a little bit, right? But I think that that's one of the things I really love about comedy is like being around people that literally, I might say don't care, but nothing is sacred, right? Mm. It was a weird dichotomy in comedy of to do it, you got to try really hard. You got to go out every night. You got to get get up and put yourself out there and maybe get embarrassed. But you don't really want to ever look like you're trying or passionate about it because that will get you laughed at and roasted too. 
in a weird way. Whereas in sports, trying is the answer. If you're going to be good at running, you got to get out and, and it's got to look like you're putting your heart into it because you're actually putting your heart into it, right? Whereas comedy is, a, is this weird thing of like, you got to have an air of I don't care about anything. I'll make fun of anything, including myself. But at the same time, I really care about booking this show or selling this room out or getting on this podcast or whatever it is. It's a weird dichotomy where I think like it's not for everybody. Um, but I think for guys like me and you, I think that balance is good. I think if I was only doing comedy, I would be just so cynical and so laugh at misery and let, point and laugh at other people and constantly roasting everybody. Whereas when I go to my day job or when I'm with my family, I'm not that. I get to become a quote unquote regular person for most of the day and then go let off some steam in an open mic or a show at night. And for me, I think that's a pretty good balance. Um, and I think for most comedians, you got to find that, I don't want to say a cliche, but find that balance somehow. Yeah, man. It's such a good point. It's so funny how I reckon my wife would agree that there's something about hanging out with a group of comedians where your level of what's acceptable, it just drops to a whole new low. And sometimes I accidentally bring that home and try and try and run one of those past my wife. She goes, but I can't believe you thought I would find that funny. I go, yeah. I'd like to apologize. I just spent three nights with the boys and they right. were all laughing at that. <laughs> yeah, it happens to me constantly. Oh. Um, uh, but here, here's the interesting, I, I, want, I want to see if it's like in, in Australia too, where you guys are. We have this weird thing in America where we do open mics to get better for shows, right? That's the, the open mics or the practice or the gym. And the open and the, the uh, shows are the games, right? To use a sports analogy, it makes mm -hmm. sense, right? Mm -hmm. But when you're in a room full of ninety percent, here if you're going to open like in America, it's going to be it's in a bar, it's on a weeknight, it's seventy five percent comics, twenty five percent people that are drunk on a Monday night. That's your crowd, right? So if everything. Then you go to a show on the weekend, and it's people with families that paid to go to a show. Maybe they had a couple of beers, but they're not hammered by any means, right? They got a babysitter. They got to get home at 10 o'clock to get the babysitter off. They go to day jobs. They pay their taxes. They're upstanding citizens, right? Everything we do that works at open mics during the week doesn't work at all at the shows, right? It's literally, I keep making this analogy and nobody gets it, but I think you do. You will. It's literally like training for a marathon by training like a bodybuilder. Like we're doing bodybuilding all week and then we show up at the marathon and wonder why we're not having a great race. Because everything that, that I do that works at the mics doesn't work for quote unquote regular people. And in New mm -hmm. we have this thing in my little world of we have open mic legends, like people that go to open mics at bars and crush, kill the room. And then you book them on a show and not and it doesn't work. Just nothing because the material's too out there for the guy, for the married couple that has a six-year-old at home that has, has to put the kid to bed to go to school in the morning. It's just, a, it's a different thing. And I, I like, I, I went to a point now where I respect both worlds, right? I like the, the underground, nothing is sacred, tear every idol down kind of comedy. But I also respect people like Kevin Hart. Like you, a guy, the guy that does a 60,000 seat football stadium with family-friendly material, just from a performance perspective, you have to respect that, right? So I think there's room for both. But we have this weird mixed up thing on now where we're, we're training for the events by doing the opposite of the events. Yeah, it's really strange, man. We definitely we definitely have that same challenge over here. And I mean, there's a few there's a few things that spiral out of that as well. I think one thing I noticed is there's definitely your comedians, comedians over here. Like there's the comedians who can absolutely dominate in a room full of comedians because they're those outlandish kind of. <clears throat> oh, excuse me. They're um. They're saying those really outlandish kind of. Let me have a drink, man. I don't know what I'm sure, talking about. I think I'm back. There we go. I think I swallowed a bug or something. There's a yeah. There's a heap of comedians over here who dominate in a room full of comics because they say the stuff that, as you say, the the bloke with the six year old kid just doesn't want to hear. But the comedians are like, yeah, these are our people. So you'll get that laugh. Um, one of the things I often wrestle with because. The, the expression that stage time is stage time, like you've got to take it. it, it exists over here as well. But I also notice that there's, there's people who they'll take stage time and they'll be good in that small room, like you said. Um, but it's like they, I don't, I don't want to say you become good at performing to like an average crowd, but it kind of feels that way. I think, I, I think I'm just repeating what you said really, but it definitely exists. And then you'll see them in a, a, a big room and it's like, they're not, they just haven't been in that situation to know what really works. It's a, I'm repeating everything you said, but yeah. I definitely relate to what you're saying. It's, I, I think sometimes I think it's better to, um, and who am I? Like I'm, I'm still quite new to it. I'm only just sort of coming out of the open mic scene. Uh, but there's, there's certain nights where 
I would rather, you know, maybe just go and write or uh, do a podcast like you say because of the fact that I feel like I'm I'm learning how to be good in an average room. I don't yeah, know if that it, makes it, sense. It, it makes sense. And here's something I found. For someone who's been, it sounds like I've been in a couple more years than you, right? Uh, me, and, me and my buddy Joe Borzada, we have a production company called Ugly Pancake Production. I send some stickers and business cards so I can put those all over Australia, which I think is kind of cool. But um, we have a situation where we book a bunch of different rooms monthly. So, like, every to every month we book this one brewery that's in a real blue-collar section of the town I grew up in. And we know, and we've been doing it for about a year and a half, we know what kind of audience shows up there, right? Then we might book a, we book fundraisers for different organizations, and we do them yearly. So, if we did something for Boy Scouts of America in 2021, now we're going to do it back in 2022, we know what kind of crowd's showing up, right? We have a pretty good idea. You can always get thrown a curveball, but you know what's coming up, right? So we have a hard, not a hard time, but we're getting better at booking the right comic for the right room, right? Because um, for it's just for example, you can't, it, you know, I try to, the Guns N' Roses is a great band, right? They're a great rock band. But if you bring them to a crowd that's expecting to see Jay-Z, that crowd's not going to like them, right? Same thing, if you bring Jay-Z to the Guns N' Roses crowd, they're not going to like that because they bought, they thought they bought tickets to Jay-Z, right? And we, we struggle with that little bit because we have a, a big enough kind of name we do in our shows where our comic friends all want to be on stuff all the time, right? And I don't like to break up. Like, you're really funny. You crack me you crack me up tonight at the open mic, but this thing we're doing for this organization at this venue isn't going to be for you. But this next thing we're doing might be. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's what's so hard when you're on an up-and-coming comic. You can't really – you only get offered so many shows a year, really. You're not – unless you're super famous, you're not turning stuff down. So sometimes you got to – if you're a comic, I guess being discerning about what shows you take, right? A little bit, even though you probably shouldn't turn stuff down. And then if you're a booker, promoter, producer of a show like I am, kind of being smart and offering it to the right people that will match up with that crowd and that that organization. Yeah, it's a really good point. It's a really good point. I'm not sure what it's like. I can imagine this would be an issue in some rooms in New York, but Melbourne is uh, – do you use the you use the term in the States PC, like very politically correct? Yeah. And it's, uh, it's kind of what I got involved in comedy to escape because just so many corporations here, everything seems to be, it's like a really PC world in a, a lot of instances. Like there's, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what sort of drives it, but I thought getting involved in the comedy scene, it'd be just like freedom from that completely. And there's plenty of rooms like that, which is, which is nice. But um, I guess, unfortunately for, for depending on what side of the fence you, you sit on, if you want to get into some of the big rooms here in Melbourne, you've got to tick the, the social box as well to make sure that you believe the right things and make sure that you're saying the right things. And as a result, I think some absolute killer comics over here, they're not getting stage time at some of the big rooms purely because the, the room runner might disagree with their point of view. And I kind of get it. Like I understand that it, you know, it might not be, if, if you're passionate about something, you might not want to bring them in, but I'm, I'm always interested that someone will ban a comedian or not allow a comedian because they personally, as the room runner, don't find it funny. And I guess if they've got that kind of audience in the room, as you're saying, then maybe, maybe it's a smart move for them. But I just, I feel like that's infiltrated the, the Melbourne comedy scene to a pretty large degree. And I think also over here, there's a lot of comics who are, who are trying to get a breakthrough on mainstream media. Like a lot of the TV shows that you just know for a fact where, where they sit politically or they at least they, they ring that bell. You know what they're going to say before they say it on a lot of issues. And I think you got to walk that line carefully if that's the avenue you're trying to take. Yeah, it's hard, man. And we're in the, where, where I am in, in Asbury Park, the small city I do most of my stuff in, right? It is a super liberal, left-leaning area, right? Mm-hmm. You, got, you got a big LGBTQ plus community. Um, it's just that it's that, it's that kind of world. And I, I like that world. I love being a part of it, right? But I also think that not the LG, I'm not part of the LGBTQ plus community. I'm married to a woman, but oh, I was going to say you don't tell your wife should be shattered. I book a lot of comics like that. Um, yeah. but that whole world, right? That whole kind of young liberal progressive world in America, and I, I, I that's my views probably lean towards that way, right? Yeah. But I'm also open to you can be completely opposite me politically and be very funny, and mm-hmm. I can laugh at that, right? I, I can be a part of that. I can book you on shows. We can absolutely work together because I think in America, at least the last like 10, 12 years now. We've been so divided between the two sides politically. I don't know if you guys are on the same page as us. Yeah. That it's almost like, like we're picking our favorite team to root for and will not acknowledge the other side has some good points too and won't even laugh at things that are poking fun at us, right? <laughs> and one thing I, you get out of being a comedian is even if I disagree with every single thing you've said, like for example, do you guys do roast battles in Australia? Yeah, sometimes. Okay. So I, I've done a decent amount of roast battles in my, in my life. 
where people were writing jokes and making fun of me specifically, right? <laughs> Just the, and, and I cracked up at every one, every single one. And it wasn't like they were making fun of some big political idea or my heritage or they were like, you look like a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. Like, All right, you got me. That's funny. I can't even. I can't even mad at that. But I also understand why, if you're not in this world, um, that guy, you can take offense to that. Not only part of it. I, you know, Tim Dillon is. You remember him? Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. So I heard him about a year or two ago. See, I think more than that. Maybe before the pandemic, he said something that was pretty good, and I've thought about it a lot. And he goes, "Comedians now don't want to be funny. They want to be right. Like they want to be on the right side of history." more than they want to be funny. And that's a, it's an interesting idea because nobody wants to say something that's dead wrong and proves to be dead wrong. And in, in a generation or playing your YouTube clip back and people are like, that guy was a lunatic, right? But at the same time, if you only allow yourself to think the way everybody else in your world thinks, how do you be funny? The funny stuff to me is when somebody looks at a situation and sees it differently than everybody else sees it and words it and, and times it where it's funny to everybody. So then this idea of like you got to be right and on the right side of the political area where you happen to be, I do think that's not not great for comedy. I think on both sides, we'd all be better off if we could, you know, hear somebody say something we don't think we agree with, think about it a little bit, realize they might have a point or at least realize where they're coming from and then say, I don't agree with that, but that was a well-written joke. And I, yeah. I feel like I'm pretty good at that. Yeah, man. I guess it's a skill you develop over years of uh, being in the comedy scene and being a room runner as well. It's uh, it sounds like you run a pretty, uh, you know, a pretty broad range of gigs. So you've got to be open to new ideas and so it's definitely something I've been trying to work on that personally because especially here during lockdowns and stuff like that. I don't know if you heard much about Australia, but we got really excited with lockdowns and uh, I turned into a bit of a loudmouth because I was like, okay, clearly like something's not working as well as what it should be. And I, I pretty quickly got shut down. But what I noticed, like shut down by a lot of people who disagreed with me in the comedy scene, which is fine, but there were some absolute guns, like you say, like some of my good mates in the comedy world completely disagree with so much of what I say, but they're still my mate. And they're my mate because they're open to ideas. They're open. And I think what I love about these particular people is they're, uh, the people who completely disagree with me but are open to having a, a genuine chat, man, I've got all the time in the world for. It's just I yeah. never, I, I'm never. i trying my best not to be one of those people who has a different idea and then won't talk to you as a result. But it's uh, yeah, it's been amazing just to watch that in the comedy world unfold. Well, I always say, man, the, the one of the coolest things about comedy, right, that I don't think we get – comedy we're done enough credit for is this. We want to be on stage with a microphone talking to a crowd, right? But around that, before and after that, the, some of the best discussions I've ever had have been with other comics, right, before and after the shows, because they are a sweeping generalization, some of the most open-minded people I've ever been around, right? And why that is, I'm not sure, but they're open to different ideas and different ways to talk about things, and they haven't really picked a side yet of, I believe X, and I'm not going to even entertain anything except X. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, but the other, thing I, the other thing I love about comedy, too, and I hope Australia's like this, because America is, we put people at open mics and comedy events in rooms with people they would never be in rooms with otherwise. Like I run an open mic right now on Monday nights that is frequented by as many high school dropouts as people with, with advanced degrees, right? And when you're on stage, only that matters whether or not you're funny, right? Because the guy with the, with the PhD could get crickets and nothing and walk off stage feeling terrible, and the kid that dropped out of high school could crush that night. And there's not too many other, and it's, it's black people, it's white people, it's Asian people, it's Hispanic people, it's men, it's women. It's an 18-year-old sitting at the bar next to a 53-year-old having the same conversation about what the mic was like last night. And that doesn't happen to any other place. I would say my three favorite things about comedy. The first thing is getting a laugh. That's in, You can't beat that, right? You got a decent crowd, you get a laugh. It's addictive, it's amazing. The way the endorphins flow in my body are like nothing else, right? Number two, my favorite, I'll go three. Number two is I'm walking out of my day job in my quote unquote comedy clothes, like the clothes I wear on stage, not my work clothes. And like my work people don't know where I'm going, but I know where I'm going. I feel like a superhero, right? <laughs> my third, my third, my third favorite thing is doing a show that's a blast. And I'm walking back to my car and I'm 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 flowing. I feel great. I put my hand in my pocket and I realized I got paid, but I forgot I got paid because I had so much fun at the show. That to me is magic. Like, oh, you're gonna pay me to do this? I'll do this every every night and twice on Sunday. And then my yeah. least favorite thing, my third favorite thing is the people in the room that would never be in that room. You know what I mean? Like, I, my whole life has been fitness and athletics and and, and books and that. 
I spend nights with people that have never even thought about working out. It's never crossed their mind to get on a treadmill, right? And they can't fathom my life. They can't fathom. I get home from a comedy show at midnight, wake up at five in the morning, go running for my wife and daughter, wake up. But in the room, we're on the same team. It's all, it's we're talking about bits. And did you see this guy did this? This girl did this? Whatever it is. Um, I think those are just four beautiful things about comedy, and four things I'm I'm grateful to be a part of every day, and later allowed to be a part of it. Yeah, man, your mum is so much of a story. Bill Burr said years ago. He said he came home from a gig, and uh, like he had one of those nights where everything just flowed. It was a good gig. He got paid, and he started dancing in in the kitchen in front of his girlfriend. And his girlfriend's like, man, how much did you get paid? And he, he got paid $8. Yeah. And uh, and she Bill said, oh, she had this sad look in her eye. And he goes, oh, what's the matter, honey? And she goes, I just wish I had a job that I could get paid $8 and come home and dance in the kitchen. And I thought, yeah, yeah. like what a what a cool take that is. So are you, uh, like with your strength and conditioning stuff, man, are you doing that at a like a university or are you running your own show or a combination no, of everything? Um, I work my, my full-time job for the last almost 18 years now has been at Seton Hall University. Okay, so if anybody there follows, you know, American college athletics, we're a small school right outside of New York City. And for the last probably 40 years, we've had a pretty decent men's basketball team that has produced a couple NBA players. Uh, we've gone pretty deep in the NCAA tournament. So we're a school that's kind of you know, on the smaller side that has a pretty national name because our men's basketball team has done well. And in the last 20 years, our baseball team has been really incredible. Put guys in the major leagues and kind of kind of been on our second you know, benchmark program that I've been lucky enough to work with. So I grew up a fan of Seton Hall, New Jersey. I had a Seton Hall jacket when I was a kid. Me and my dad used to watch them on TV. And then I had a bunch of jobs before that. I was actually working in Major League Baseball, which is a you know, national pastime of the United States. And then the Seton Hall job came open in 2005, and I interviewed for it and got offered it. And now I'm in this, this kind of great position where – I can, um, I, I'm working in a part of a thing I grew up a fan of. So it's really kind of been a cool thing. And now, like, instead of watching games, now, now there's days, you know, my daughter, my dad and my daughter come to a basketball and we're all watching it together. So it's like three generations now at this point, which is really cool. And then I always say, like, so that's kind of allowed me to do some other things. And the first thing kind of did, like, side hustle-wise, close to 10 years ago, the players thought I was funny. That's what the, the, the players thought was funny in the weight room. And that led me to go to New York City and start doing open mics. And kind of was the, the ball rolling of what, what I'm doing now. But also allowed me to write the book. We talked on your last podcast. That's led to some, some personal training stuff, a lot of public speaking engagements. Um, I don't know if you guys have the, the National Strength and Conditioning Association, but that's our kind of professional association in America. I was recently uh, elected the New Jersey State Director of that. So now I'm kind of in charge of putting together conferences and clinics uh, for that kind of extending education side of things. So I'm kind of a... I, know, I like to be involved in a lot of different things. And I'm lucky enough now that I've been in the profession 20 plus years. I want to try to give back in some capacity. That's why I want to try to put on these conferences, these clinics, educate young coaches and try to bring some more people into the field as best I can. That's unreal, man. So you're not just working with, with distance runners and cyclists and things like that. Yeah. You're working with athletes yeah. in, in all different sports. Right. In my, in, my, in my day job, I work with relatively few distance runners. We have a men's women's cross-country team. There's about 10 kids on each. Or there's 20 cross-country kids. Um, we have 250 student-athletes. So, like, I work with way more baseball players, soccer players, or football, as you guys might call it, uh, swimmers, than I do runners. But then running became a passion of my own about 10 years ago. So the book was was based on a little bit what I do with our cross-country team in Seton Hall, but more what me and my co-author, author, Dr. R.J. Borgers, did when we were training ourselves. And that kind of led the, got the ball rolling on the book. Because, like you said, I deal with a decent amount of distance runners day-to-day um, but the majority of my time is spent with your kind of field team sports. Yeah, really cool, man. That's interesting. At the moment, I'm uh, I'm uh, I'm putting together. So I I do a lot of running coaching for running based sports. Like I've got a couple of athletes that I coach for distance running, but a lot of the work that I do, or the main chunk of of my business is is Australian rules football. I don't know if you've seen right. it. You might have yes. seen like highlights. It's incredibly or, entertaining. It's amazing. It's a crazy sport to watch. Like it's it's hard to know what's going on if you're not born and raised on it. It's a it's a different thing, but it's a it's a really the, like a lot of the players will run around sort of 10 miles, five to 10 miles in a game. Like a midfielder especially will run about 10 miles fairly comfortably. Um, but there's so many elements. You need strength. You need that aerobic capacity and you need the uh, speed, uh, strength and agility, speed and agility. So I'm at the moment uh, putting together like an eight-week program for, for strength, uh, speed and agility for these specific players. So if you've got any cool resources, man, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm just buried in, I'm just doing some research and stuff to make sure what I'm putting together is, high quality but uh, it sounds like you know more about that than i probably would so if you've got any ideas uh, you should, i'd love to know about them 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I think it's a little bit hard to say. I don't know that sport overall, but my, my general rule of thumb, and this is even a book we talked about on the other show, I think with strength and conditioning, 75, 80% of what we're going to do in a weight room or conditioning-wise or agility-wise, I think is good for everybody, right? In my opinion, your, your core movements, your squats, your bench press, your pull-ups, your push-ups, every human being can benefit from those unless they're injured and, and can't do them and it cause further injury. But a healthy adult, I think all that core stuff is great, right? Your, your big foundational exercises. And then after that, that last 20%, if that's your cake, right, your core exercises, your good running mechanics, your good jumping and landing mechanics, your, your good squats, good lunges, good pushes and pulls, then the icing is kind of what you do sports specific, specificity-wise, right? So, for example, if we're talking American rules versus Australian rules football, in American football, we stop every play, right? So we need to train almost exclusively fast twitch fibers, phosphate energy system, explosive energy, and then rest, recover, do it again, right? Where you guys are running around so much more, it's probably a little bit similar to, more we play, similar to the way we train soccer or yeah. football players in America, where, like you said, they're running – six, seven miles, but there might be a quarter mile or half mile of all out sprinting, but then the other five miles are, are jogging to the play. They're kind of backpedaling, whatever it is. Um, but I think the biggest thing is to watch the sport, see how they move, see what they do, and then look at the players you're working with and see where their deficiencies are. You know what I mean? And it, I think watch, you got to watch them play the game a little bit, maybe have a battery to test you do when you start training them and start working on their weak points first. And then work on getting bigger, stronger, faster from there. Mm. Yeah, that's good, man. That's really good. It'd be an interesting role. Like, there's so many. I'm fascinated in the in the world that you're involved in because there's a there's an Australian exercise physiologist I love talking to. His name's John Quinn, and I love talking to him for the same reason as I love talking to you. He, he just sort of he just exudes passion for what he does, and it's so nice to be a part of. But more than that, he's worked at a really high level. So when I talk to him, I'm like. It's an education for myself because there's so many different facets, isn't there? It's just like a, it's a constantly moving puzzle. What might work for one athlete, it's a different picture for another. It, 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 and you know what, man? It's the, it's the best and worst thing about our about profession as far as anything is concerned is that if you stress the human body, it will respond and rise to the occasion to deal with that stress, right? So it creates a situation where, in theory, everything is good and everything works, Right. As long as we, tr we do things to get better, stress our body and make ourselves better, we get bigger, stronger, faster than it might be. The, the, the goal, I think, should be to find the optimal way to do that for each person, which is a, it's a, it's a, it's a never-ending race, right? You just get to target that moves, and it's really hard to get to. Because even if you found the best training program for a 19-year-old, when that man or woman turns 20, might not work, and that might not be the best training program anymore, right? And that's something I've kind of learned as I've gotten older as I train differently at 40 than I did at 30 than I did at 20, right? And then just, you know, just bodies change, injury states change, disease states change, things get, get different as people get older in age. So it's this thing of like, I, I think you have, number one, have to stay passionate about it because there's no, in my opinion, you can argue, there's not really a right answer, right? Like, let's say I do a training program for six months. And I set the world record in a marathon. You can't prove that if I did something different, I would have set the world record even faster. Right. I might have gotten better doing something else. And then there's so many pieces to the puzzle. Right. There's nutrition. There's sleep. There's hydration. There's supplementation. There's resistance training. There's endurance training. There's what shoes you're going to wear. There's a million factors that that. And I think it's a the, the, you need to have a high level of passion to, to try to put together that puzzle that the pieces are you know incredibly small, hard to fit together. And there's a thousand pieces out there and the pieces keep changing. Right. Yeah, man, it's such a good point. Yeah, it's such a good point. It definitely keeps you. It definitely keeps your mind on trying to put that puzzle together. I agree with you. It's part of the fun. I used to love that with my running training, just dabbling in different things and um, just trying to be consistent enough for for long enough to find out if what I'm doing is working or or not working. But for the general, because obviously there's not necessarily like an athletics base or people who are necessarily just passionate about fitness. As far as I know, who listen to this podcast as a whole. It's not like the running podcast where there's a keen interest in that, but right. you touched on it before, but, but for someone who might be keen to just get started in making a few changes to their general fitness, like you were saying, the pull-ups, push-ups, and we've touched on, you know, diet, exercise, things like that. Is there a, is there a bit of a scope or a little bit of a foundation that you offer to people like that who are just trying to um, like some real solid exercises and, and tips just to get started? Yeah. The, the first thing I always tell people is if you are the, the out of shape, we'll call it, quote unquote, out of shape, right? Maybe you have 20 pounds of extra body fat, you haven't worked out in 10 years, and you don't do anything active in your life. Like you drive to your office, sit in office, drive to your house, sit on the couch, right? 
the first thing I think we need to do is is get comfortable with some kind of physical activity. It might be walking to the end of your block and back. If you don't if you don't do that now, that might be hard for you, right? But start trying to get your body comfortable moving from point A to point B. And to keep real, that's probably walking in the beginning. Can you walk around your block a few times? Can you get active, take the steps instead of the, the elevator kind of thing, right? And to get your body comfortable with movement, just basic movements of daily living again, if you haven't done them in a very long time. At the same point, I say, try to make some small changes to your diet. What we see in America too often, not sure if it's there, people deciding to make a change on New Year's, throw out all the junk food, stop going and buy healthy food, organic produce and, and free range chicken, eat that for like two days, and then they go to McDonald's on the way home the third day of work, right? I think a way to do it is look at, okay, if you really like, let's say, fried chicken, that's your, that's your favorite you know, cheat meal food of the day. Well, then, all right, I'm not going to eat fried chicken during the week. If I make it to the weekend, then I'll have some fried chicken. During the week, I'm going to grill it or broil it or bake it or have it a little healthier way, right? If you love sweets, you probably can't cut chocolate cake out of your life completely. That's unfair for you like eating every day. Can you go two or three days without it, have a piece of fruit for dessert, and then maybe make it to the weekend and have some chocolate cake and reward yourself? I don't think wrong with that. But I think that the problem we have in the fitness industry is you have people that are completely sedentary and overweight and have a bunch of health issues and don't do anything physical, looking at the complete opposite end of the spectrum, right? We're looking at CrossFit models and guys and girls with abs and just walking around looking like the Avengers. They're like, I can never get to that. Well, no, you, you maybe you can't. Maybe you can't get to that, right? But can you get a couple steps higher on a fitness ladder and improve your quality of life? And that's one of the, the best things to do. And just start having, and the other thing I think that's kind of good in the era we live in now, if you're not going to take it too far, the fitness trackers and the the diet plan apps and stuff for your technology person for not to be obsessed with, but start thinking about calories in versus calories out. Right. Mm -hmm. Just have a vague idea of, you know, if you go to, if you eat a giant waffle for breakfast and put whipped cream and syrup and melted chocolate on it, and you eat a 2000 calorie waffle for breakfast and then don't do anything the rest of the day. Right. You can't be shocked when eventually you have excess body fat. Right. On the same token of, if you're going to run a big race that day or go on a big hike or, you know, do something that, that waffle might be a good breakfast choice for you that day. Yeah. But I think one thing we've kind of lost is the idea of like, you know, the, 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 going on the junk food industry, the fast food industry, at least in the United States, is so good. The formulas are so good. It tastes so good. Our body craves calories, fat, sugar, and salt so much. And it comes like McDonald's, Hershey's, Coca-Cola. They make a product that if I tell you I don't like it, I'm lying to you, right? My face <laughs> and brain wants that product so much. But can we do it a couple times a week, maybe a couple times a month and not every day and get ourselves back to liking fruits, vegetables, good carbohydrates, good protein sources in a pretty natural form. And just I think the biggest thing is make small changes and start thinking about what you're eating and how that affects what you're doing and how you feel every day. And just keep getting more into that as you go as you go better. And you know, if you have one good day of eating and a good day of exercise this week, try to make it two days next week, try to make it three days the next week. And the thing, and the other thing is. People, I think, and we're in America, we're terrible at this. We keep selling this person got this surgery or took this product or went on this diet, and in three weeks, they changed their life. And you look at the before and after picture, right? It's a long haul. If you're going to do it the right way, it's a, it's like comedy or running a marathon. It doesn't happen in one night, right? So make little changes and let those little changes snowball. And at the end of the first month, you might feel some changes. And in the second month, maybe you'll look a little different. At the end of the year, if you stick with it, you will make some massive changes. That's a good point, man. I was speaking to my brother-in-law because when I was in Oregon, um, one thing he sort of struggles with, he's a fit guy. He works as an arborist, so he's climbing a lot of trees. But um, he's made that transition out where he's got a couple of employees now, so he's not up there as much anymore, and he reckons he's getting a bit chubby around his tummy. And uh, I didn't tell him I could see it, but I saw it a little bit. And I, <laughs> I, uh, I went to the gym pretty regularly with him when we were there. But he's like, dude, I know that when you go home, I'm going to struggle with this. And one of the questions he asked is like, how do you not struggle with it? And I think for me, when it comes to a lot of the health stuff, it's it's more about an investment into the the longer, like the future me. And I I like the, the idea of putting the work going, all right, like what's 60-year-old Tyson going to think about this? It's not so much about the aesthetics of it. I'm not trying to necessarily have the best pecs and the best abs. Right. It's more, I just want to be able to use my body in a healthier way as I get a little bit older. Definitely. And uh, I was... I listened to a podcast the other day and it sort of helped me understand why that's a, a helpful approach because 
it was Andrew Huberman. I don't know if you know about him. He's yes. a neurologist. Yeah, professor at uh, maybe Stanford Medical School, I think. Well, the, the Huberman Lab is the podcast name, right? Ex exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah great podcast. I've, I've just discovered it. And uh, he was talking to David Atiyah, like a, a health span, lifespan coach the other day. Yeah. And David Atiyah made a great point. He said, um, don't just exercise for what it might do to you in a couple of weeks. E exercise or come up with a plan of how you want to live your last decade of your life. And I thought that's interesting. Like, that's what's a good call. Yeah, I've never yeah. heard that before, but I like it. Yeah, and, and his explanation was like, all right, say if your goal is, all right, you want to live to 90, 100, everything going well. Like, do you want to, like your goals might be, all right, I want to be able to go for a walk around the block for, you know, a couple of miles each afternoon. I want to be able to play with my grandkids. All right, how do we do it? Well, he said he's got a few tests. So some of them is you've got to be able to, that's going to involve a little bit of cardio. It's going to involve some strength. It's going to involve some flexibility. Um have you got a program to build around that? And I thought, hey, what a great take because then it's not just like, oh, I have to do this because I have to do this. It's like, no, this is actually what i got to do if I want to live the latter years of my life in a really healthy way. And the example he gave, which I'm, I know you and I will love, was uh, I can't say to you, all right, I've got an event for you in 12 months, train. Because if I don't know, if it, is it a marathon or is it a bodybuilding competition? It's right. like, <laughs> and too many people don't take the time to, to clarify. And I know for me, like my goal often changes. I'll go through a phase where I'm like, all right, I want to get running fit. Then the next time I'm like, all right, I want to, I want to put on some weight and, you know, look a bit more impressive when I'm walking around the house with my shirt off. And uh, so it sort of varies, but I think the the core fundamentals of, of that are always pretty similar, like cardio, flexibility, a little bit of strength, good nutrition. Um, but then just, you know, ebbing and flowing with whatever your goals are. Yeah, I think that's great. Two things I'll add that you kind of touched on. Um, one is if you think you don't like to work out, you haven't found the right workout yet, right? There's a million ways to train and stress your body. I Right now, the last couple of years of my life, I've gotten really into running. I'm really into, I like running a lot. Um, but for the 10 years before that, I was a competitive powerlifter and Olympic weightlifter. And I really love the platform and, and lifting heavy weights, right? My next 10 years, I might get into something different. I might get into swimming or skiing or whatever that is. I'm fine with that. I think you're going to, to force yourself to do something you hate once you don't like it anymore. And, and there's a million other ways to be physically active, I think is foolish, right? So if you think you don't like training, I think you know, get in a little bit better shape. So if physical activity isn't torture for you every minute. And then try some different things and find what you like, right? The other thing I would say, and you had your this effect on your brother-in-law, is go find some people that like to be active and be around them, and then you'll be active too, right? The, the saying in America is if you if you're the, if you hang around with four fools, you're going to be the fifth one. Well, if you hang around with four overweight people, you're going to be the fifth one of those, right? So if you hang around with five people that like to train, and you guys go to the gym every couple nights, or you go to a CrossFit class together, or a Zumba class together, whatever it might be that's going to keep you coming back and committed to because you like hanging out with your friends. Right. And that's a big thing. Um, you know, I, I find in America, we have a thing where high school kids are pretty active. College kids are pretty active because they're doing a lot of activities together with their, with their friends and classmates. Right. When they graduate and go to the working world, you don't tend to work out with the people you work with. Right. You don't really tend to work with your family. So it becomes a solo endeavor. And one thing we see in America, and I'm big, I don't have big CrossFit was over in Australia. But CrossFit exploded here about 10 years ago, right? It became the biggest thing in the world. And everybody in my profession, strength coaches, hated it. Like they're not doing the movements properly. They're cheating on their pull-ups. They're getting over these injuries. And my, thing, and, so, and my thing was, okay, all of that might be true. Go to a CrossFit gym and watch adults, successful adults, doctors, lawyers, whatever it might be, go in a gym and get after it like high school kids. They're high-fiving each other. They're, they're one-upping each other on a pull-up bar. And they're being, they're not just being active, like walking on a treadmill, which is probably boring for them, but they kind of got that element of play and element of competition back and they're moving their bodies and getting in better shape. And I don't care what any strength and conditioning person in the world says, you can't tell me that's a bad thing that general population people are working hard and getting in better shape. I don't, I don't see the negative in that. Yeah, it's a good point, man. It is. A, it's interesting you're seeing, isn't it? Because there is a lot of obsession, and probably rightly so, in uh, to a degree. Like if you're trying to take it to a higher level, make sure you're you're doing the movements right. But if you're if you're a general person just trying to improve your fitness level, yeah, like exactly what you just said. It's, uh, you may as well be in there having some fun. That play was another one they touched on the other day. Like it's such a powerful factor that you forget about as you get older. I'm trying to incorporate that into my life a little more as well. Yeah, I think I like comedy it. for me is that too. Yeah, definitely. I definitely agree with that. But even working out, wise, at least in the United States. We, I don't know, maybe 20, 30 years ago, fitness became this thing that you had to do in air quotes, right? And it turned into things that were fun when you were a kid, playing sports, hanging out with your friends, racing around a park, playing tag, whatever it is, to 
torturously walking on a treadmill staring at a sheetrock wall right <laughs> and then you, you go in the gym and, well no wonder people hate this this is terrible yeah. but then i think the last 10 years we've gotten a little better finding ways to make it fun and and I, this between the the crossfit the co-ed sports leagues and then the, at the phone and watch app so you can peer people over the world it's kind of become a different a different animal at least over here and it's a good thing yeah, man. Are you using any of those phone apps? Like, do you use a, a whoop a whoop band or whatever I, they call whoop? I, I don't. I don't use one of those. I know a lot of people that do, and I've only heard good things about it. Right. Right now, I'm using the Strava app on my phone to to do my mileage on my runs, and that that's kind of cool. And that's that's a cool little system. I was re- for a couple of years previous, I used Nike Plus, um, and then I just got a new phone. I wanted to try something new, so I sw- I switched over to Strava. Um, but those are the, the main things I use for like performance tracking and you know, and data analysis and stuff like that. Yeah, sweet, man. I have to give you a follow. I've just recently relaunched my Strava. Um, I hadn't oh. been running a heap, but I, uh, um, you know, it's always much more, it's like my favorite form of social media, I think, just jumping on, seeing how my mates are going. And the only thing with me is I get too competitive. So I'll go out for an easy run. And I'm like, all right, well, J- James did five-minute miles. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's like everything else, man. Too much of anything is not a good thing, right? So just watching your friends and being too competitive can be a, be a negative too. Yeah, no, awesome, man. Dude, I know it's getting late over there, so I'm not going to hold you up. I, uh, I So good to touch base with you again. It's really, uh, really good. For, for anyone listening who's interested in finding out about your comedy or your strength and conditioning, is there anywhere you want to point them? Yeah, man, a couple of things. On Facebook, it's Angelo Gingerelli, just my regular name. I'm sure you've seen it on the show notes. And then on Instagram, my personal account is Mr. Fifth Round, MR, the number five, T-H-R-O-U-N-D. And then the book account that we talked on the other podcast, just again, is at finish underscore strong underscore book yeah um, man, mr fifth round account is most i see it on the shelf man that's great the mr fifth round is most of my comedy stuff and the finish strong book account is mostly book fitness running stuff yeah awesome actually brother i'm um, not just saying this to blow smoke but um when you sent this to the house in america i came home my brother-in-law who, who i was telling you about was reading he's like man this is good it's like it's really it's explained in a way that uh it's not super sciencey i can understand the way that it's explained i like how it's backed up um, and I find the same thing, man, like really, really good books. I recommend it to, to anyone who's, uh, who's keen to, you know, develop their, their health and strength and things like that. So man, awesome to catch up with you once again, really enjoy it. That, that hour flies by. So, uh, we'll have to do it again sometime. Hey, thanks so much, man. I love both of the podcasts. Keep in touch and let's do it again soon. All right, brother. I'll see you later. See everybody. <laughs>